Welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable. This is the Discipleship Podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. It's brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. Uh, Together we encourage thoughtful discussion of the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. Sitting around the table with me today is Tim Eichoangeli, Scott Slater, and I'm Spencer Snow. Um, here on another episode of Pastors of the Roundtable. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing all right. I I think we should change the topic today. What do you want to talk about? Well, after our conversation we just had, that was very depressing. I think we should maybe get off the denominations and get on to NFL talk. Yeah, all right. Okay, I'll be back next season, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, themes of redemption. I mean, we're having and, a good conversation about a good story. Kurt Warner. Got a movie coming out. Yeah. Denzel Washington. And then Scott's like, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I, it was just kind of depressing. Yeah, I know. That's, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, Kurt Warner is one of the great stories of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to own his biography. You used to? Yeah, I don't know. Apparently it wasn't that great. <laughs> it was great. It's in his heart now. Yeah, it's in my heart Memorized now. it. <laughs> Man, I remember, yeah. Don't I get just me know started. that's your hero. That is my childhood hero. All those guys were. It's probably like Apostle We've Paul. We've only mentioned one guy. I can Kurt remember Warner. many team people on that team. So yeah, yeah. You could you name all the starters? You think offense, Maybe defense? No, nah, I mean the offense. I could probably get pretty close. Who's the kicker? Field goal kicker? Jeff Wilkins. Really? I think he was the kick. He was the kicker right after that. So I think he was then. Hmm. Um, yeah, because yeah, he was the kicker for a while. Well, you know what? St. Louis doesn't have a team anymore, so. Yeah, but that's why we're suing the NFL. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, yeah. Looks Sorry. Like Scott, we lost Scott. He's down to read. He's, he's gone. He's not he's even gone. He's gone. I'm about to get on social media and just endlessly scroll. <laughs> well, Jeez. okay. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I didn't mean to you know, I, I think, um, yeah, themes of redemption in the NFL season, we could... Yeah. We've wasted three minutes of people's lives by talking about this. Well, I think some people are probably frustrated at you. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. We'll have to do some good catechesis on you, Scott. <laughs> That's right. Have uh have you remember um some things about the about the NFL to help you. Um so we began last week a uh series, started talking about uh denominations. Um and about their importance, what they are, but also now we're going to go through different groups of Christians or pr- people who profess to be Christians, maybe we should say, and um, talk about what they believe and also how we as a, a Baptist church um, are different from these various traditions, various uh, groups of people who profess to be Christians uh, as well. And so... Um, this week we want to uh, begin, last week we talked about um, kind of introducing denominations, what they are, um, why they're important, on and on. This week we want to talk about the first uh, tradition, uh, denomination, so to speak, that we want to talk about is Roman Catholicism or Catholicism. Um, I kind of like to throw the word Roman in front. Um because uh, I think, in a sense, we should all want to be small c Catholic Christians, which mm-hmm. simply means embracing of all true believers of the true gospel wherever that's found. Um, but most of the time, people today, whenever they hear the word Catholic, they associate it with the uh, Roman Catholic Church, which is centered around 
um, uh, the Bishop of Rome, the the Pope. So um, today we want to talk about uh, Roman Catholicism, what it is, and just kind of some differences as we kind of have a conversation about how we um, are different from them, how we um, perhaps how we could have conversations with them, with people that come from a Catholic background, and and so on. So one of the things that's interesting is that if you do a little research, and I don't know if this is happening so much today, but it definitely was in the fairly recent past. Um, talking about why certain people leave evangelical churches and go to become members of the of the Catholic Church. There's actually been a study done by a guy named Scott McKnight called From Wheaton to Rome, Why Evangelicals Become Roman Catholic. And uh, one of the things he, he points out there in his article is this, people convert because of perceived needs. The needs are met by the group into which they convert. I think the needs tell us something about the person. They also tell us about the incompleteness of each major Christian denomination. And so he, he points out there that some of the reasons why uh, that he, he, he found, kind of he's grouping things together, about why people would leave evangelical Christianity and what is the allure uh, for, of, of uh, Roman Catholicism. He gives, uh, overall, there's this idea of a desire for transcendence. And this is a desire that people have for something that transcends their time, their place, the ordinary bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps there is the the um, they may feel that their their wherever they're going to church is not um, transcendent. It's it's too bound by their time and place, and they're looking mm-hmm. for something bigger beyond themselves. So, for instance, they may be looking for certainty. How can I know what I believe is true or uh, transcendence in the sense of history? Because they're wondering, I want to belong to a church that um, is bigger than simply my time and place, but has transcended for 2,000 years. Uh, maybe a desire for unity, because they do see all of the various denominational groupings um, of professing Christians in, in church life uh, all around us. And lastly, a desire for transcendence in the sense of authority, because who has the authority to tell me what actually Christianity is, what I'm supposed to believe. How do I know that what I believe is true and who has the authority um, uh, to tell me um, what I, what I ought to believe. And so I think these are, these are helpful things um, as far as trying to understand why certain people would look um, whatever evangelical type of church they're coming from. um, And that could be any number of different traditions, but they're looking at that. And then they're looking at, at the Catholic church and saying, the needs that I feel I have here are met by um, the Roman Catholic Church. What do you think about some of the um, analysis that he's given? Do you think that there's any validity in that? And, and uh, yeah, just what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, personally, I could see the appeal to that about, I mean, all those that you, all those that you read, like, how can I know that this is true? Well, the Catholic Church can say, well, for 2,000 years, we've kind of been working at it, plugging right, at it, you know, right. and they, they can go back to different councils and at different times say, we actually discussed this and this is what was settled. And so this is what we've held to, uh, or just to add to that, the historical nature of it, of having that history that goes all the way back that far, uh, is comforting to me. That would be very comforting, uh, to me to know I'm falling in line because when you look, when you read the Bible, there's so much history in it. In the Bible, obviously, God saw it important to teach people history. 
all throughout for the Jewish people and how they would put stones in places and say, you tell your kids this when they see this stone so that they will remember what I've done. And with the, with the Roman Catholic Church, you know, with their stance that we go back all the way to Peter, you kind of feel like, see, we're just a success succession of this line. And that I can see how that can be appealing. And then also, if you're studying God's word, you know, if, if you're reading God's word and you're like, I don't, I'm not sure what this says. Well, if you're Roman Catholic, you know exactly where to go, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly where to go. Where right. if you're Baptist like us, you know, you might know a couple names that are Baptist or something, but there's not always a ton out there. And so sometimes you feel like you're left wandering yeah. and that you could all of a sudden end up somewhere else down the down the road, right? Um, so there's a lot of a appeal, I think, to, to that. And then like you said, I don't know if anybody, I, I went to uh, a Catholic wedding. It was in uh, Pittsburgh. Me and Amanda went for a friend of hers. Very strong Catholic area. Yeah. And I I remember leaving that wedding thinking, you know what? This wedding was all about God and very little about them. Hmm. And I was wondering, like, man, I wonder if that's really how it should be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're Mm -hmm. in this church, and they really did, like, honor God. They had all kinds of symbolism. They did all kinds of things. It was a very long wedding, but it it was known and understood by everybody in there that this is more about God than anything else. Which was right. which is appealing, right? At least it, to me, yeah, very appealing to to see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I've, I've not uh, read Scott McKnight's study, but I have heard that, especially to younger generations, like so millennials and below, which would be my generation, that churches that are more liturgical in nature, like the Catholic Roman Catholic Church is are appealing to younger generations because of a sense of transcendence. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'm, I mean, I haven't thought of these four categories that you thought of. I mean, this this kind of seems like a person who's coming at it actually intentionally thinking mm-hmm. about their faith. Right. Whereas the studies that I've heard and as people have talked about it have been more so that they're seeking just a general spirituality mm-hmm. and a liturgical service that we were talking before this that seems more ancient mm-hmm. and is more ancient feels more spiritual. Right. And so that's why they're drawn to that. And so like these categories that you listed seem to me like a person who is actually thinking and looking for on a search for truth. But I've also heard people are going or flocking to it just because of the way that it feels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because there there is some um, at least my my little acquaintance in um, doing some surveys and people people will mention the um, to them the uh, beauty the profoundness of the mass the the worship service of the Catholic Church centered around the the Eucharist or what we would call the Lord's Supper um, to them that is a very very central component in some ways it's very um, uh, they find themselves drawn to that in a sense. So um, I do think that there is something to where in, in our effort to sometimes be so um, relevant or uh, trendy or hip, we've actually forgotten that actually those, those categories in a world that feels like it's always changing in a world that always feels like it's always in flux and in chaos. And what's the next thing around the corner from a from a from a one angle, and I think it's not a. I don't think it's a, a, a. I think it's it's a veneer. The Roman Catholic Church seems to offer a rock of stability, 
of of being ancient, of unchanging, and also of something that is going to anchor me in something bigger than myself outside of my time period. And um, so I think there is there is merit to think that 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 is part of the allure. And mm-hmm. I think it's also a, a symptom that we have to evaluate as Protestants, um, people who are non-Catholics but who are committed to um, as Baptists as well, that are we... Is our worship service and is our church life, are we approaching it with the questions of what is trendy, what is hip, what is cool, or are we asking the questions of what is biblical, what is appropriate, what is uh, scriptural, um, and and how should our church life, how you approach the question is going to determine uh, to a large degree what, what answers you arrive at and your presuppositions. And so if we're coming at it from just a trendy angle, the ironic thing is we may actually lose people because they're looking for something solid. They're looking for something to grab onto. And we don't, I mean, as, as committed Protestants, we don't want them to latch onto the Roman Catholic Church. We disagree with um, the teachings, respectfully disagree, but we disagree with um, what they believe uh, about tradition and scripture, about <clears throat> salvation and about um, the Pope and, and how the whole system works. We disagree with that mm-hmm. and have for 500 years. But there has been some changes, right? I mean, within the Catholic Church, I would say more recent. We're, we're talking about yeah. this unchanging church for 2,000-some right. years, and I, I, that's not fully true. That's right. They have changes that they've done, and even more, more recent, um, I saw in your notes the second— Vatican Council, I can't remember the dates of it that you had in yeah, there. Yeah, 62 to 65. Yeah, 1962. In, in the 60s. And the reason for that, he said, uh, Pope John then would say, uh, we want to throw open the windows of the church so that we can see out and the people can see in. And so even from that, that was a pope that was very loved. To the to the current pope, you see some uh, discussions, it seems like, within Catholic circles of like, now you're seeing like more conservative Catholics, more less conservative, more liberal Catholics. And there's... yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say they're fighting. They all still will fall under the, the Pope, but you you are starting to see some things where maybe some churches are asking, how can we reach out more? How can we be more trendy within the Catholic? You know, and, yeah. and then you got people yeah. holding on. So even in that denomination, they still do struggle with it. Some You're exactly right. That's a really good point because they have changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, they, they, they might not want to say that, but they have changed. Um, you know, for instance, they would... Uh, execute protestants because of our translation of the scriptures into the and giving it to the common man but now they've got bible studies yeah now they do so it's like i mean i just think that the reality is is and and i think many catholics would would be honest about that as well yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't deny that um and also you're right the the 60s really changed it so for instance one of the things that changed is um no longer was the 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 service the mass the worship service was no longer in latin it was. Mm-hmm. It could be held in English or Spanish mm-hmm. or, yeah. um, or whatever they speak in Kentucky. Uh, what, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, uh, they could they could address it in the vernacular. Another thing that changed that you could imagine would be actually quite profound is before. My understanding is, and I'm just doing this out of my research, but the 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 priest, whenever he was doing um, the mass or the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist service part was facing away from the congregation in Vatican two, they switched it so that the priest now is facing the congregation. Mm -hmm. So you could see how that would also be a bit more friendlier Mm -hmm. and less, less mysterious. He's facing away from us. Now he's facing us and it's kind of, um, just changing the service, changing things kind of makes the, the disposition a a friendlier Mm -hmm. to the world in a sense, kind of putting a happy face, 
uh, on the on the church instead of maybe being a bit too cold. Or when I was in college, we had a class that was kind of on like church buildings and structures, and we would go mm. and uh, visit visit different ones. And the Catholic church that we went to was called the Contemporary Catholic Church, and their building was very different than any mm. other Catholic church I'd been in. It was like wood and very modern looking yeah. as you went inside. Yeah. I remember, um, but I remember the teacher saying that they are a very uh, contemporary Catholic church, like even in the song, they would sing songs together mm. that were more written mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. today and right. some different stuff. But it was it was interesting to to see that because from my experience with Catholic churches around here, yeah, you know they all look very similar and the things that they have and in place. And there's a reason for all those things sure. that are in in its place. Sure. So let's talk a couple of things. Uh, talk about a couple of uh, of things that are really important that are differences um, between us and uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, the first thing I think that is important to address is uh, where we base our faith out of and up on. What is the authority? What do we, what do we govern our our belief system up on? What is what's the foundation? And for us as Protestants, it is Scripture alone is the final authority. Um, no, no other. There is no other source of authority other than what God tells us in the in the written Word of God. Um, that's different for Roman Catholicism, which elevates alongside of Scripture equally uh, tradition, mm-hmm. uh, which which can be unwritten. And uh, and um, Scott, you're looking at me kind of weird. I'm not. Tim is way too close to his mic. I can <laughs> I can hear his nostrils. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is this? Yeah. So scripture alone. Sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. Some of us are ready to talk. Others yeah. are scrolling on social media still. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's trying to figure out who Kurt Warner is. I still don't know. He threw he for must a, not be that important. Listen, he he threw for over forty touchdowns in the '99 season. That's all you need to know. And that's going to get him into heaven. Yep, perfect. Gets him the Hall of Fame. Yeah, gets him the Hall of Fame. He's perfect. A, that's um, essentially the same thing. Yeah. So tradition and scripture, they would they would uh, uh, believe that alongside of scripture, equally uh, held up is 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 unwritten tradition. So I've got here a, a definition which is from the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. So I'm stealing this uh, from them. They they define this as the living tradition is the living transmission of the message of the gospel in the church flowing from the oral preaching of the apostles and the written message of salvation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Tradition is preserved and handed on as the deposit of faith under the guidance of the bishops, successors to the apostles. So one of the things that happens is is tradition is, they would say, right, well, the apostles did two things. They wrote stuff and they said stuff. We have the written stuff in the Bible, but also they passed on through an oral unwritten. They had unwritten things that are just as valid as far as apostolic authority are concerned. So we've preserved both. We have the book, which has the written stuff from the apostles, and we have the unwritten traditions, which are also uh, have authority as well. And so that's been preserved as well in the church and under the guidance of the, the bishops who are understood to be, to be the successors of the apostles. So they have two uh, uh, equally, uh, in their, their understanding, valid uh, sources of authority. So has the unwritten been written now? I don't know. I don't know if they would say that it is even written down still. I don't know. That's convenient. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I guess I just don't know how then you would know 
it as authority. Right. Well, I, I, that's a great, well, I think that's, that's the great question. Right. And I think that's the, that's the concern we have as Protestants is our, I mean, let's just be honest from our perspective, we look at that. Yeah, we, right. say, we say, you guys, you can make up whatever you want then. Um, and you can then, um, and they would not say, for instance, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I would think they would, they would have some level of, for us, where we would say scripture is sufficient by itself. I don't know that they would say that they would say it's inspired, but it may not be sufficient to govern everything because we have unwritten tradition to go alongside it. So all of those things together. Yeah. Um, and it's not even, up. it's not even a matter of, Yes, there is at one point in time where you could say, well, then you could basically say whatever you want, and you can just claim that this is part of the tradition. Right. That's a little bit more nefarious in in terms of that. But I right. think also is like realistically, humanity has fallen. Right. And we right. have a sinful nature still, and even a person with good intentions trying to lead in what they might consider to be tradition and a good tradition can still be tainted by sin. Correct. Correct. But, I mean, I think the Jewish faith would say they have oral tradition— as well, but right. they have it written down. Well, one of the things <laughs> is later. This is interesting. You bring that up because reading one Catholic writer, he draws parallels between how the Jews had their written Bible mm-hmm. and also suppose. And this is the thing the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees were saying, "Well, we've also got oral traditions right. that come straight from Moses too." And of course, Jesus seems to not really care about those oral traditions and says, "What does the Scripture say?" But that he draws a parallel actually, and says that we do the same thing as the Jews did in the Old Testament. Um, Additionally, here, there's another, I think this is from one of their Catholic documents as well. I don't know if this is from the Catechism uh, itself or what, but it says, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God. So tradition, scripture, both sacred are one. They're both regarded as the um, Word, Word of God. And notice who, um, and one of the things that's interesting here is at the very end of this, okay, so who gets to decide what the Word of God contained in the written Scripture and in unwritten tradition? Who gets to decide and interpret it? The last point. The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church. That is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. So, if you're wanting to know how do I understand what the Bible, the Scripture, and the unwritten tradition says, which together make up the Word of God, if I want, how do I know that I'm understanding it right? Well, you need to listen and understand and do what the Pope and the bishops who are in communion with him say to do. Because notice, I think one of the things that's interesting, by the way, as a as a Protestant, we'll get to this eventually, where we talk about grace alone, faith alone. They insert the word solely, which is almost an alone. It's yeah. an alone point. The church alone has the authority, and uh-huh. by that they mean the officers, the, yeah. the bishops. Those people alone have the authority to tell you what God wants you to do. I think there's something appealing to that, though, still. Yeah, because yeah. it's a cop-out. It's an easy way out, too. Well, it's not just that, but you know, when I go to the doctor, I'm trusting that he is highly educated and that he's using things that right. the best doctors in the world have decided right. are the best thing for right. me. But yet, when we approach scripture, at least, at least in the circles that I'm around, mm-hmm. Jim Jim Bob can say I'm a pastor. He has no training. He has no anything. It's like, well, how do you know the Bible? I read it. What do you mean? I read it, and I just I'll tell you what it says. And there, it, that has always been very worrisome to me. Or 
even handing somebody new the Bible, like maybe it's a new Christian, and you hand them the Bible and you say, read this. You're still doing that, though, with some caution. Right. Like, I need you to read this, but I need you to meet with me. I want to talk this over with you because there's a lot of where places you can go. So there's some comfort, at least, in that their tradition there to me where if you want to know where you're going to go to the Pope and the Cardinals and the people that we've put in place to study this to know to determine what, what is best because they're the best trained, they're the most qualified in their Supposedly. sense. Right, but I mean, yeah. they're going to go where... I mean, we can make fun of it, but we do the same thing. What does Al Mohler say? He's the president of our seminary. What do our seminary right. professors? Well, that was that's, my. That, that, that's why I said that is because it's like your only hope is to ensure that that person, the Pope, and the people mm-hmm. who are surrounding him have not somehow been corrupted by outside desires. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. And so, like, it's. But yeah. I, I don't think we could argue the fact that when the word of God started getting into people's hands, there was good that came from it. Sure. But there's also bad that came from it. Right. Absolutely. Right. And that's all I'm saying is mm-hmm. there's this idea run perfectly. If it's run perfectly and these people aren't being swayed and all this stuff, there's some comfort there to know this is where I go to find out what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Just like us, we did. We go to the Bible. I want to know what it says. Right. I want to know the truth. This is it. I can see the appeal of someone saying, I can actually go to someone today, alive today, to tell me exactly what the Bible means and what the truth is mm-hmm. here. And I don't have to doubt it. Mm-hmm. I can walk out 100% sure. That's that's the part of the transcendence thing, yes. though, right? Certainty. Yeah, right. How do I know mm-hmm. that I'm getting the true interpretation? And I think, um, I do think there is a part where in, uh, and, and this happens in certain Protestant traditions more than others, where what you're describing, you mentioned the name Jim Bob, but I mean, I, any, just, I was know, trying to think of a name. I, Derek? I couldn't think of a name. I actually know what you mean. You do? I do. I wish I did. Uh, yeah, I think that was a steakhouse in Joplin. Um, Jim Bob Steakhouse? Yeah, it was probably good. They probably were all Kurt Warner fans. And they had a buffet. <laughs> no, I don't know that there was a buffet. Oh. Um, I think you could crack peanuts, though, and just throw them on the floor. There you go. That was it's cool. called Texas Roadhouse. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was Jim Bob's. Okay. But um, I do think that there is a point, though, what you're saying is, is that we should value... Um, and this can be pressed to unhealthy degrees, some level of an, of an educated, learned ministry at some level. You don't, before you can be entrusted to teach other people mm-hmm. the word of God, you've got to be vetted yourself, yeah, yeah. spiritually, morally, ethically, but also at a certain level intellectually, because whether or not we like it or not, preaching, teaching is book work. That's just kind of the way God made it. And right, it doesn't yeah. mean that that's the only holy thing anybody can do, but that's just the nature of our religion. It's a th- final authority is found in a book. And God has instituted offices, pastors, teachers, um, to help the church understand. Now, we're not infallible in ourselves. We're not infallible. You can disagree with us and um, and such, but our goal is to understand what the scriptures say because we we recognize ourselves as under the authority of the book and um so i i I do think that sometimes protestant churches we don't help ourselves in this case because we we go the other extreme and just say well yeah anybody in there it's a free-for-all yeah and that's not the way either Mm -hmm. there needs to be um god has given us a church because and that's why i say that because i have had people you know well who are you as pastor to say that the Holy Spirit is using you more than using this person over here who told me this? And, you know, and it's like, right, well, right. I can't fight you, I guess, on this, but that guy's just sitting on a corner and just read the Bible for the first time. Right. I've went through a lot of training and really, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, again, 
you can't really fight against that argument right. when they when they say that and right. that's that pushback that I I think has went too far. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And this this is the thing though too. Another difference I think and I don't want to maybe I shouldn't press this too much but like I think there is a difference where in Catholicism it's almost like the church comes before the Bible. Um, they recognize the canon. For us, the word creates the church. Mm-hmm. So the word is so the, the the church has. While on the one hand, yes, the church is given by God to teach me the scriptures. On the other hand, the church itself is never a mediator of salvation, like Jesus Christ is for my right. So, I think one of the problems is is it the, the church needs to be careful that she doesn't make herself kind of like the intermediary between the word of God and we're we're to teach people it but we're not like the we're, we're not Christ. The and and in Roman Catholicism it definitely feels like um it's it's salvation. It is salvation through the church instead of the church being the people who are saved. It's the church that is, they emphasize the church as the instrument by which you get into a right relationship yeah. with God. Yeah. It, it honestly, this might be way out in left field, but it seems, I mean, at least this conceptual idea of what we're talking about, yeah. the necessity of the church, um, just sounds a lot like Mormonism. The yeah. Way that Mormonism mm-hmm. is set up. It's They're obviously very different, but it's the same way of that, yes, you know, we have the scriptures, but we also have these other scriptures which are essentially just traditions that yes. have been passed down from their founders. Mm-hmm. They have prophets today yes. that are still the authority that are like considered the final authority. Yeah. There's just a lot of parallels You're right. between the way that Catholicism functions in terms of where the authority is mm-hmm. and Mormonism. You're exactly right. It's very hierarchical, and um, yeah, they have a, they have the Catholics have a pope, the the Mormons have a president, but they they function in certain similar ways. I don't know. I'm sure there's differences, but well, I mean, I think like what you were just saying about like if you are outside of the church, you are outside, right? And that's right. the same way in Mormonism, I know, right? Is that right. if you are outside of the church, you have no access, right? Because it's connected to the the system of the mm-hmm. of the the ceremonies and the sacraments. Yeah. Okay. Second of all, so we've got a difference between us as as Protestants. We would believe, of course, that Scripture is the final authority. We does not mean that we don't use commentaries or. Uh, we should want to read the Bible with the church now, with our local church, but also with the church of all the ages as best we can, um, because we realize um, we're not the first people to read this book. And so it takes a level of humility to approach what God is. We believe God is directly speaking to us through the scriptures, but he doesn't simply speak to us individually. He speaks primarily corporately to a whole people. And that's why we listen to what the church has said. Now, it doesn't mean that church there's certain people that can be wrong but we still take that into account at least i think overall um, as we approach the scriptures but we definitely believe scripture alone is the final authority for our conscience and faith and practice second of all there's a difference in overall understanding how we're saved and um I'm stealing some of this in the handout that I passed out in the Sunday school class from a book called Expressions of the Catholic Faith, A Guide to the Teachings and Practices of the Catholic Church. It's by a guy named Kevin Orlin Johnson. And it's got the, um, I don't know, what something, but it's basically saying that it was okayed by the Bishop of Dallas. So I'm assuming that if the Bishop of Dallas gave his okay up on this book, that this is at least roughly um, standard Catholic 
teaching and, and equivalent to what, what they would believe. Um, but overall, one, uh, some of the things that stand out right away are, um, of course, like we believe, they believe creation was, was made by God. But right away, one of the things that really stands out is we have a difference, um, and we have to wrestle with this, about what sin is and what the fall of mankind into um, sin means. So, for instance, um, I believe I'm quoting from this book, but also uh, from the handout here, but for instance, about original sin, what what happened whenever Adam and Eve fell and ate the fruit? What happened and what are the results for us? They will say this, all mankind is born in a state of original sin. Quote, not that we're punished for what Adam and Eve did, because God is not cruel, but that we're born without those supernatural gifts that we'd otherwise have had. So we lose some certain supernatural gifts like the promise of immortality, integrity. Um, um, so we lose those things, but we're not actually being punished for what Adam and Eve did. Now that kind of seems a little off right away because Paul seems to say in Romans chapter 5 that whenever the first man and woman fell, we also became sinners because of our covenant headship relation to them. It wasn't that we actually did the sinning, but because of what they did, it's imputed to us. So we do have, we get the guilt at at some level um, for what they did. Additionally, they say this original sin, quote, only changed man's state. It didn't change human nature. People were made in the image and likeness of God and created good. People can act badly, but people are by nature good. So there is a difference, I think, in understanding of sin between the uh, Roman Catholic understanding and what we would uh, believe as, as Protestants, which is that sin wasn't simply, you know, it's not like that people act badly, but they're basically good people. We would argue that the reason why people act badly is because they're already bad people. Um, in heart, as Jesus says, the one of the big verses is Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus says, the reason why um, all of these evil things flow from your heart is because your heart is already bad. I can't quote the verse exactly, but he says all of these evil thoughts, um, all of these things flow from a heart that's already disposed and set on on evil. And additionally, you'll see throughout the scriptures, um, the scriptural writers, I mean, Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. And David seems to be highlighting the fact that not his mother necessarily sinned in the conception of David, but that David was born in a corrupt, sinful um, estate already with a heart set on rebellion uh, against against God. So do you think that we have a different understanding of or emphasis of sin than, than Roman Catholicism does? Yeah, I mean, another passage of Scripture that immediately came to my mind is from Ephesians 2, when it's talking about us in our sin, and it just says that uh, we were by nature children of wrath. Right. Like the rest of mankind. I mean, he specifically says, by nature. Yes. As, as you know. Yeah, good just point. As we're created. And so, like, that is talking about our nature. Yes. And who we are, um, which goes directly against what, you know, he said there, that people are by nature good. Well, right. That's not what Ephesians says. Right. Ephesians says that we are by nature children of wrath. After the fall. Yeah. After the fall. Yeah. And so, and I think too, like something else that just struck me uh, there in under point number two in original sin, when you said that we are not punished for what Adam and Eve did because God is not cruel. Mm-hmm. As if 
God's right that seems to be placing God's righteous judgment as cruel. Mm-hmm. And the Bible never presents God's judgment as something cruel. It presents it as something just right. and good. Right. And so they seem to have a at least a misunderstanding of the nature of God's wrath as being something not that's cruel, but that is just right. and good. And right. that God is fully righteous in carrying out on yes. those who hate him. Yeah. This is going to have ramifications as we see um, throughout um, looking at these issues because what you think about the problem is going to influence what you think about the solution. If you think the problem isn't that bad, the solution doesn't have to be that good. Mm -hmm. And similarly, we're going to see how this influences what they think the solution is. And so you've lost certain things. You're still by nature basically a good person, but now you need to regain um, this promise of immortality and such so you need to do it um and so the way in which at least this one book describes it is that we need to grace is getting back the closeness to god that adam and eve uh rejected and so we get this back through a conditional covenant a contract he says and this is i'm I'm quoting exactly from this book Just as he'd offered a contract, a covenant to Adam and Eve, God offered a covenant to people after the fall, after the fall, a covenant tied directly to the way the world works, to the whole pattern of health and happiness, disease and death and so on. You obey those commandments, God said, and I will be your God and take care of you and I'll receive you after you die. If you deliberately reject this offer, you're on your own and you've got to take the consequences here and hereafter. Additionally, he says this about grace and how it's given to us upon condition of obedience. He says this, and you get it, talking about grace, on exactly the same condition that God laid down for the first people he'd offered it to, obedience. You manage the necessary reconciliation. You manage your reconciliation between you and God primarily through the sacrament of the same name, which is the channel for the grace that comes when you resolve to repent and you stick to your resolution and when you ask for the help that you need to do that. Yeah, you, you uh, interviewed Dr. Harkins from Boston College. Yeah. And you asked him a question. What are the five things you would you would want non-Catholics to know about Catholicism? Correct. And in his third and fourth answer, he says this. He says, Catholics do not believe that any human can work his or her way into heaven. Salvation is a gift of God that comes through grace, which I think we would say, oh, wow. Right. I didn't know Catholics right. believe that. Yeah. Right. But then his fourth one, next Salvation does require the human's cooperation with grace through good works. Yes. But good works alone are insufficient given the fall into sin. See number three. And so, I don't know. It. I mean, it would It would be tied back to the church, I'm sure, that you go and receive grace at, at church, at Mass, through the Eucharist. You do that. Then with the good works that you're doing, along with thou God's grace, mm-hmm. you now get into heaven. People outside of the church who are just trying to do good works, they don't have any grace, so they. Um, that's what right. I'm assuming. It's like a redefinition of the word grace. It is. It is. Right yeah. on. It is. Yeah. Right on. It's funny you say that, because just, um, and I'll encourage people to do this, if, if you're not a listener to the White Horse Inn, you should be. Um, it's awesome. They were just talking about this. Um, I was listening to it last night, and they, were, they had interviewed a Catholic theologian, and they were talking about, are we saved by works? And his basic answer was, well, no and yes. We're not saved by works that we do apart from grace. So they would say, for instance, you can't just go and follow the Ten Commandments apart from any grace of Jesus Christ and merit eternal life. However, 
once your grace to them, for us as Protestants, grace is primarily, it's in God, God's kind favor to us. It's God's attitude, God's regard mm-hmm, to us. Mm-hmm. For Rome, grace definitely feels like a substance that is put in us. It's like the fuel to get the works done. Now they will say, no, you know, you are justified by the works that God works in you through grace, so through the substance, through the fuel that's put in you. So there is a nuance there yeah. where on the one hand, you're not saved by works, but on the other hand, you are saved by works that God accomplishes or that you accomplish with the help of God's grace. And you can definitely lose that grace. You can, you can definitely lose that salvation. Because right? it's dependent upon you. Because it's dependent upon you. But they it probably is. don't say when you no. lose that. No. There's and not a good, clear definition well, to knowing. Correct. And that's, we'll get to that, the whole question of assurance uh, quickly, because I, I see our time is fleeting. But I mean, I see also there's, and this might be where you're going because of what's yeah. coming up next, but there's also, I mean, where's their understanding of Christ's imputed righteousness? That's a great question. To us, because I, that's like if a way, I mean, this might not be, mm-hmm. we still are saved by works, but it's Correct. Christ's works exactly. that are given to yes. us. We are given Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin upon us, right? Yep. That's 2 Corinthians 5, yes. 21. Mm-hmm. And so they seem to not regard Christ's active obedience to the Lord as being regarded to us. Right. Right. No, you're. Exa- that's a great point too, Scott. Because um, we, for us, justification, our acceptance and being made right with God is based solely alone upon the imputation of what Jesus Christ worked and did and died in His whole life. Nothing we do. Um, I don't know how they would if, if they would say there's even a partial imputation. That would be a great question. I think to they ask say them. it. I mean this this guy's fifth answer is in the Mass, Christ represents mm-hmm. the once and for all sacrifice of himself to God the Father. Catholics do not believe the sacrifice of Christ on Golgotha was somehow insufficient and therefore has to be offered over and over again. Rather, the sacrifice of the Mass is Christ's sacrifice on Golgotha, right. made present for us. The only difference is the manner of presentation. So I think the way that it's imputed is by you being there, in the mass, as it's being presented again and again and, and it, again, it seems though that it's not so much even though about inf- imputation; it's about infusing this into you. And yeah. that, let, let's mm-hmm. get to that actually ahead, real quick yep, because um, he does connect and talks a little bit about. So I have to notice the emphasis. It's it's still a for us. It's a it's a contract that is equally two way, where God says you guys got to do your part, and then I'll do my part. Um, that's that's uh, not good stuff, but he says here. Uh, that was, that's a very technical. Yeah, way a very technical way to say, it. man. Yeah, not, not good, good stuff. Not good, it's stuff. not good stuff. Knock yourself out. So, um, so listen to this though. It uh, talks about what Christ did in His atonement. But unlike Adam, and I'm quoting again from this book, Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to show us what we could look forward to if we kept His commandments. So Jesus rose from the grave to show you what you can be if you obey as well. In other words, Christ redeemed mankind from sin. But salvation is another matter altogether, and it's a two-way street. You see Christ's sacrifice laid the foundation of redemption, but each of us has to build on it, working out our own salvation in fear and trembling. And notice, incidentally, that nobody has any assurance of salvation any more than you know when you're going 
to die. He additionally says faith alone is not sufficient. He says, but faith alone isn't enough to get you home safely after the journey of this life. So it's not enough to trust what Jesus Christ did for me outside of myself. That's not enough. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you can now actualize your salvation through your resolution, through your attempts, through all of your hard work to be radically serious about God. And it's all placed upon you to make sure you actualize the atonement of Jesus for your salvation now. And this drives us to the question that Luther was faced with. When do I know I've done enough? When have I sufficiently repented? When have I sufficiently resolved to obey God's will? When have I sufficiently stuck to my resolution? When have I really sincerely, totally, fully known that I've asked God and really wanted it? Because it's all ultimately the linchpin is God's done all he can. It's all up to you now. And what this does is this drives us inside ourselves and like Jeremiah says, the man of the heart of man is evil. Who can understand it? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a maze. You can't do it. And also, notice he says, no one has any assurance of salvation. One of the great Roman Catholic theologians of the Reformation time, Robert Bellarmine, said the greatest heresy of Protestantism is the assurance of salvation. Well, that would make sense. I mean, if you believe you mm-hmm. can lose it, mm-hmm. it, it would be just right. the worst thing to start right. telling people they can't. Yeah. yeah. Right. right. And so this life is about balance. He even says, I mean, explicitly, listen to this. I mean, I think to us it's somewhat like, I can't believe he said it like this, but he literally says about, you know, death, uh, or he's talking about, you know, you try to make up for what you do because repentance for them consists of forgiveness and atonement. You ask for forgiveness, you can be forgiven, but then God, you still have to take your licks for what you've done wrong. So they say, you can make up for your sins and take your licks for them either in this life or in the next. And he says, basically, the idea is to do good things to balance out all the bad, as well as avoiding more bad things. <laughs> I mean, I, at one level, I mean, it sounds really crude, but I appreciate the fact that he's being honest yeah, about... So he's being bluntly honest, yeah, he's yeah. being bluntly honest about, this is what we believe. Yeah. I can't help, but, I mean, when you read what you did about Christ up there, it says, Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to show us what we could look forward to if we keep his commandments. Mm-hmm. I, like, going through this, there's been a couple other points where I can't help but notice it's pretty easy to see how there are parallels between Roman Catholicism and what we just got done talking about in progressive Christianity. Yeah. Because that right there, that is, Jesus is my moral example. Yep. Yep. that I am supposed to be trying to follow. Right. I'm supposed to follow what he mm-hmm. does and says. Mm-hmm. And essentially my life is about doing good things. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's essentially what progressive Christianity is. Yeah, you're right. And I think um, it's it's a sandy foundation to build upon because, I mean, how do I know that I've done enough? How And notice Jesus is really way, way, way in the background of this. The cross, substitution, imputation, blood, sweat tears of Jesus for me is way in the background and I am I am way up in the front. So um anyway, I just think that this is helpful for us to talk about as we wrap up here just because um we as as Protestants as people who are Baptists we believe that while we want to honor God with our lives and we we should strive for obedience to turn away from sin and to uh strive to as we talked about, you know, put on the new man 
We are not saved by anything that we do, ultimately. It is all because of God's kind favor and disposition to us in Jesus Christ, who sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Mm -hmm. And whenever he said, it is finished, he meant it and didn't mean that it's for us now to put into actualization. And so I think um, it should really make us, on the one hand, understand why we believe and what, what we believe and why we believe it. On the other hand, it should help us to um, ask good questions. If we've got Roman Catholic friends, I'm not saying they believe all of this stuff the way this was put. They may they may themselves have different views. Um, but at the same time, to realize that um, the, the true gospel is radically different from the way um, the ordinary man apart from Christ thinks. They, we, we, the old Adam still thinks in the terms of a contract, that if I do my part, God will do his part. The gospel tells us I can't do any part. God has to do it all and save me from my sins. Um, and that's, that's called uh, grace alone, <laughs> faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God uh, alone. So um, do we have an outro music thing here at all? You do the same one. I do the same one. Yeah, That's down low. We need something. No, you got to start at low. Start down low. Start at low. I'll start at low. There you go. Push okay. the button. I'll we'll press the button here. I'll just. Oh, that nope, was wrong, wrong button. That's the last. <laughs> That's the last track. That works. I just wanted to hear that, that on purpose. Yeah, I wanted to hear <laughs> yeah. that. I wanted to hear that. <laughs> that one fits. I was like, okay. There's no way. Oh, well, now we got laughing and crickets. Okay, let's turn those off. Oh yeah, yeah. All them right, off. now let's turn on the outro music. Okay. Wrong song. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we hope this has been uh, helpful. Um, if you'd like some more information about Roman Catholicism or such, you can check out the resources page on the MMBC website. Um, that's mmbc.org. No? mmbconline.org. You'll see at the top says resources page, and eventually you can follow the links through Sunday School and then through the Introduction to Christian Denominations page. There's more resources there if you're interested in learning more about Roman Catholicism or any of the other denominations that we're covering during the class. Go, go to a Baptist website. Go to <laughs> a Baptist about Roman Catholicism. Hey, that's what we do here. Perfect. That's what we do here. Thanks so much. Take care. God bless.